Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Twenty years ago, Britain and America went to war in Iraq. On Tuesday night, I gave the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. Now, this is what it looked and sounded like in Baghdad. As bombs rained down on Baghdad, the Iraqi president, Saddam Hussein, was holed up in the capital, trying to plot the fight back. This evening, Iraqi television showed President Saddam Hussein meeting some of his most trusted commanders. They were discussing how to withstand the attacks as a map of Iraq was spread out on the table in front of them. Meanwhile, our woman on the ground was in the north of the country on her way to Baghdad. I was just north of Mosul trying to get as close as possible so that we could get a sense of the campaign there. That's Catherine Philp. She's the diplomatic correspondent for The Times. From the very start of the invasion, Catherine has reported on Iraq, returning again and again to cover the chaos of the war and its often violent aftermath. And now, two decades on from those first reports, she's back. And I'm speaking to you from Baghdad, where I've returned as the 20th anniversary of the American invasion is upon us. This is Catherine's account of the people she's met. Coffee uh, with uh, sugar or without? Uh, Of the lives and the country they've rebuilt. This is your... Security camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My God, how many do you have? Yeah, because she goes. Oh my God, you've got cameras on the yeah. street as well. So you can see who's coming? Yeah. Not because uh, someone come or thieves also, but maybe my wife cheating. No, joking. <laughs> <laughs> but also of the people they've lost. Hello. Have you a book? His father get cutter. Uh, Ah, his father got killed by American in 2003. What was your father's name? She's not a book. Abdul Abdul You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Iraq 20 years on. Part 2. Back in Baghdad. Catherine, you've been in and out of Iraq 
ever since the invasion and you're back now for the 20th anniversary. Just give us a sense of what Baghdad is like now. A lot of traffic. It's a very congested city. It's a very busy city. You see probably more life and more normality than I've ever seen in Baghdad. Um, I've been coming here since 2003. And I was here after Saddam was toppled from power. And even in those early days, there was a, a sort of tension that I really felt had ebbed for the first time that I'd ever known in Baghdad. So. Uh, this evening, talking to one of my contacts, I was sitting out on the street on a main street called Karada, which is a massive sort of commercial thoroughfare in a very mixed neighborhood of Baghdad. And I was able to sit out on a pavement cafe with my back to the traffic and, and not worry that there was a car bomb or someone who wanted to kidnap me. And I think it's probably the, really the first time I've, I've been able to do that in Baghdad. So, Catherine, you mentioned being there around 20 years ago, not long after the invasion began. Just take us right back to the start of the war. Where were you in the run-up to it? I was in the north of Iraq, in the Kurdish regions, which were almost a de facto state, a neighbouring state to Saddam's Iraq. So the night of the date that's taken to be the anniversary, March the 20th, was when the bombing began, the shock and awe campaign, Baghdad and Iraq's other major cities. And I was just north of Mosul, trying to get as close as possible so that we could get a sense of the campaign there. And I was staying in the house of uh, Yazidi Prince, Yazidi being the minority that was to go on to be the most persecuted by Islamic State. And for you, as you arrived in Baghdad, what did you see over the next few weeks and the next few months? By the time I got to Baghdad, the looting had mostly finished, but there was quite a lot of chaos still going on. People freed from a totalitarian state. There was kind of excitement, tension and a bit of chaos in the air. Um, American troops here for the first time. And I was able to walk around and go to places feeling reasonably safe. But that very quickly deteriorated. Obviously, the looting was pretty menacing. I mean, it was so out of control. There were gunshots going off. There was a sense that no one was really in charge. And the Americans kind of came in and tried to impose some order, but it was very sporadic and and it it felt like there weren't enough Americans uh, to do that job to really to secure the city and they were very um, picky about where they did actually station themselves in the very early days which gave rise to all sorts of conspiracy theories and about what they were doing there um, because they were sent for example to protect the oil ministry and not the National Museum which lost vast amounts of Iraqi treasures of the past when it was looted. And just talk us through what happened in the next few days. So in August 2003, as the insurgency was beginning, as these bombings were starting to happen, we got news that the sons of Saddam Hussein, Uday and Kusay, who were known to have fled Baghdad when the Americans came and were thought to be helping to foment an insurgency, 
we got news that they had been surrounded by the Americans in their hideout and shot dead. Today, our coalition forces conducted an operation. The divisions employed multiple weapon systems to subdue the suspects who had barricaded themselves inside the house. Four persons were killed during that operation, and we have since confirmed that Uday and Kusay Hussein are among the dead. These were figures with an almost mythical status in Iraq and a negative mythical status because um, Uday in particular was known to be a psychopathic sadist who was known as absolutely untouchable. He sat at the top of an absolutely horrific system of secret police and torture chambers. Uh, if he saw a woman that he liked, he would ask for her to be sent to his palace and he would do what he wished uh, w with, with no comeback, including the daughters of some of the senior people in the regime who used to keep their wives and daughters out of eyesight of Uday. It was sort of what you did to keep them safe. He was known to have shot dead more than one woman who displeased him in some way. I mean, this was a man who lived in a, a massive palace, much like the one that his father had. The idea that these people could actually have been killed by the Americans was kind of overwhelming for Iraqis. He had his own private zoo on the grounds where he kept lions. There are myths that he fed adversaries to the lions. I have no idea if that's true, but almost nothing was too, too outrageous to be said about Uday. All of it could have been true. I remember, in fact, coming to Uday's palace after the invasion and finding American soldiers there trying to look after these lions that they hadn't expected to find or to be part of their, their duties. They're relatively tame. I mean, we were These? Yeah, wow. And his palace had been bombed, but it was full of the detritus of a luxurious life. It's a lot of uh, black market uh, merchandise, like liquor, a lot of U.S. liquor, a lot of French-made wines, uh, Yadro porcelain from Spain, uh, Bohemian crystal, Svorsky crystal from uh, Czechoslovakia and Germany. Underwear. Check it out. Quite a lot of it had been looted by the time I got there. Uh, when we came in here, we got to see all these cars, and most of the looters got to them. The remnants of some of them, like the Range Rover and all that, all the high class ones, must be uh, driving around Baghdad right now, along with the ones that were across the road. There's actually another garage that's totally empty. There were lots of empty Rolex boxes and things like bullets cast in solid silver laying around this vast armory that he had. The first sign that things were going in another, more dangerous direction was the bombing of the Jordanian embassy. And I remember showing up there. We heard there'd been an explosion. We showed up there and it turned out it was a suicide car bomb had tried to ram into the front of the Jordanian embassy. It killed possibly a handful of people, but it was certainly the first attack of that kind we'd seen. And again, there was mass confusion and chaos. So that was really a precursor to the thing that happened next that was deeply shocking, and that was the bombing of the UN compound in Baghdad. 
A massive truck bomb destroys UN headquarters at the Canal Hotel. Over 100 people are wounded and 22 killed. Which uh, w was an enormous car bomb that killed Sergio de Mello, who was the head of the UN office in Baghdad. Matilde, Matilde. It shocked everyone because they were able to reach so far inside a target that should have been so well protected. And really that was actually the beginning of what would become Al-Qaeda in Iraq. That was in the, in the height of the summer in 2003, and it was a hot, hot summer. The temperature soared to over 50 degrees. People didn't have electricity, they didn't have water. There was growing discontent, increasing anger towards the Americans who were behaving very imperiously. The occupation of our country, they are controlling everything, they are stealing everything, they are destroying our history, our museums, they are killing our children. In terms of the insurgency, that was when it began. The White House has always insisted the resistance is composed of foreign mujahideen and Saddam loyalists. But in this room, we found ordinary young Iraqis. Insistently, the majority of the population support their actions. Violence was happening now all over Baghdad in particular. It was just an extraordinary orgy of violence. And I was speaking to a historian, Saad Eskander. He was trying to rebuild the National Archive and the National Library. So when I was appointed director of the National Library in 2003, my name is Eskander. And my hair was black, was it that grey? He was trying to keep a blog of the violence at the time. And he kept this blog for nine months. And he gave it up after nine months because it was becoming too overwhelming. The violence was so extreme. For example, the first person I hired at the library, he was assassinated, he was killed in the Civil War. I, I read one of his entries where he was talking about everywhere he tried to go, there was another car bomb that had cut off his route. And he mentions in the course of a journey just between the airport and trying to get home in Baghdad. When I arrived to the airport, there was nobody there because they, the terrorists controlled the highway. Everywhere you seemed to turn, there was another car bomb. About six separate vast car bombs in the course of one day in Baghdad. So that really was the kind of level of violence that was happening at that time, and that continued for a good three years. Coming up, Catherine takes us through the streets of Sada City, a district of Baghdad that became a battleground during the war, and where, 20 years on, every family bears the scars of Iraq's bloody history. That's in just a moment. I'm Anthony Lloyd, foreign correspondent for The Times. I started reporting for The Times in 1993 from the Bosnian War. Since then, I've reported from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Sierra Leone, and now Ukraine. I can only do this sort of reporting thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. 
You can subscribe today and support our journalism by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever since the war broke out, Catherine has regularly returned to Iraq, reporting on the chaos that unfolded. Now, 20 years on, she's been revisiting some of the places that were so violently fought over. Places where every home holds a personal history of loss. We're coming into Sadr city, which is a suburb of Baghdad that under Saddam Hussein was called Saddam city. Sadr city was always very deprived under Saddam Hussein. And I would say one of the most striking things to come back 20 years later is how little it's changed. Still immensely congested, slum housing, dirty streets, really just doesn't look like any of Iraq's oil wealth has ever touched Sadr City, except for a few pockets here and there where you see big mansions owned by some of the militia leaders who found a way to make money in the new Iraq. Are you still meeting a lot of families who have been scarred by violence? Absolutely. And, you know, everyone has a story to tell. I mean, I think it's hard to meet anyone who hasn't lost someone in violence. I was speaking to a family there who'd lost their father in 2003 very soon after the invasion. What was your father's name? She's not a book. Abdul Wahab Abdul Razak. 
And what had happened was he had dropped the family off at a grandmother's house. He was going home and he stopped at a checkpoint and a stray gunshot sounded out and the Americans who were in charge of the checkpoint, obviously extremely nervous and jumpy, just opened fire. So he was killed in, in just gunfire that was never meant for him or targeted at him. And it took them several months even to find out what had happened to him. Did they apologize? They say we apologize to your father. He was killed by mistake for us, you know. And he did nothing, and we know he was just a mistake. He had killed. And it turned out that he had been taken to the morgue. The morgue at that time, because there was no electricity, was unable to store the bodies. And so that there were some charitable people who'd come and used their own money to take away people who'd been killed and have them buried. Um, and so, yeah, it was months, only months later that they found him there. And, you know, to speak to them today, they, they, there wasn't hatred for the Americans. It was just sort of part of, that they understood that it wasn't targeted at them. They received compensation even from the Americans. So I think that they felt at least they'd had a reckoning. I mean, some people, you know, many people died in ways that were never accounted for or apologized for. Or their bodies were never found. But like the rest of Iraq, the tragedy didn't end there for that family. 16 years later, they were struck again by the violence that had been unleashed by the war and continued to echo across the country in the years to come, long after the last American troops had left. In 2019, the youngest son of the family was 23, and he was studying at university, and he heard about um, this demonstration, protest movement going on, which sort of resembled the others you've seen during the Arab Spring where people have come out in the in the streets to say that they're tired of their government. And what was different about Iraq was that in the Arab Spring, people were protesting against, mostly against dictatorships in the Arab world. These protesters were coming out and saying that their democratically elected government was failing them. It wasn't bringing them security. It wasn't bringing them peace, it wasn't bringing them jobs or electricity or any of the things that the state is supposed to provide. And interestingly, one of the things that they targeted, that they blamed for this, was the original system set up by the Americans in 2003, which had power sharing divided amongst Iraqis according to their sect. Now, the idea behind this was sort of well-meaning, so that you shouldn't favor one sect over another, you should try and share power between the sects. But really what it did was to institutionalize and enshrine the, the idea of sectarianism in Iraq, so that people still primarily identified as Sunni or Shia or with their sect or Kurdish, rather than forming a kind of a mature political culture that could address the needs of their people. So um, this son, Sarmad, from this family, he went out with the protesters in Tahrir Square in Baghdad in October of 2019. <laughs> 
and he joined the protests uh, in which they called for this system to be removed and for proper, what they saw as a proper democracy to come in its place. He say, uh, my brother, the demonstration is as a beginning. He say he was very happy and he has big thought uh, there will be big change for Iraq, mm -hmm. for a new government. And what happened was that the government's own security forces turned their guns on their own people. Uh, my mom, she talked with him, she crying and tell him, please don't go uh, anymore. And then he refused. He said, I will continue. So, in 27 October, mm. he been to the Tahrir Square. Someone called uh, oldest uh, brother, mm -hmm. and he told him, "Look, is Samad your brother?" He told him, "Yes, Samad, my brother." Mm -hmm. He told him, "Look, your uh, brother, he get injured, he get attacked in his head with a bullet." What happened to Sarmat was that he was hit in the head by these smoke grenades that were fired at very close range, knowing that they would harm the protesters. And he was hit in the head, rushed to hospital. Um, his family arrived there, found him unattended to because, again, the hospitals weren't functioning properly. They were overwhelmed by the wounded and the dying. And so they got him to another hospital. He barely regained consciousness and he died about two weeks later in hospital. Not just for him. All his friends mm. who was with him that day, all of them dead. Four of his friends. And he was one of about 600 young people who took part in that protest who were killed by the government. And he's buried in Najaf as well? Najaf. Yeah, close by his father. Yeah, yeah just close, uh, next to his father. <laughs> While in Baghdad, that family and many others were caught up in the violent protests against the dysfunctional democratic system that the Americans had left behind in other parts of Iraq, another wave of violence had swept the country as ISIS, or Islamic State, spread their reign of terror across a number of Iraqi cities. So-called Islamic State grew out of Al-Qaeda, which took root in Iraq in the chaos that followed the invasion. So in 2014, Islamic State had come into Iraq from Syria and taken over Mosul the second largest city in Iraq, and there was terror at the thought that they might reach Baghdad. Another major piece of what America fought for in Iraq was lost today. Islamic militants seized control of Mosul with one and a half million people. The group had already taken the cities of Fallujah and Ramadi in the West. When I went back in 2016, Islamic State was still in Iraq, uh, although it was really being chased out of Mosul back into Syria, it was still being rocked by, again, you know, these kind of suicide bombings. And the day I arrived in Iraq in 2016, that night a massive bomb went off in a mixed area of Baghdad called Karada. Uh, it was Ramadan, it was coming close to Eid, and it was 
the car bomb exploded outside a shopping center that was full of young people buying um, gifts for Eid that was coming up. It happened around midnight. The heat of the Baghdad day has abated. Uh, so there were hundreds and hundreds of people in the street, including families with little children. Now, this morning, the Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider al-Abadi, came to the scene. People are so angry that this sort of, these sort of bombings continue that they drove him out of the neighborhood, throwing rocks at his entourage. Over 300 people were killed in it, and it turned out, in fact, to be the worst single suicide attack of the entire 20 years. So uh, that was really a horrifying wake-up call to Baghdad, having seen ISIS defeated in Mosul and in Fallujah and essentially being pushed back to Syria, that this was not necessarily over. I mean, that's horrendous. You've got more than 300 dead, a bigger suicide attack than at any point in the war. But Catherine, in Iraq, will people have seen that attack and Islamic State, the entire movement, as being a direct consequence of the Iraq war? Oh, oh completely. I think even Tony Blair has, has said there, there's, there's something in the theory that Islamic State is a result of the invasion. It is very directly because the lieutenants who went on to head up Islamic State were fighters in the early insurgency against the Americans. The mistake the Americans made was to put them all in the same prison camp together when they captured them. So Abu, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the leader of Islamic State, um, he was put in a camp called Camp Bukha, which is where a lot of people went after Abu Ghraib. It was a bigger camp in the south. Um, and, and really, that's where they all hooked up with each other and formed these networks. So both jihadists driven by religious zealotry and extremism met up with former Saddam elements. And that's really, that was the genesis of Islamic State. So Catherine, for, for people who only ever see Baghdad and Iraq, really, when it's in the headlines, just give us a sense that in terms of the security situation. Is it reasonably stable now? I think everything's relative, but the absence of terror attacks, of explosions, of car bombs, massive car bombs, that kind of thing, and just the life in the streets, the fact there's not a curfew anymore, um, speaks to that. Relative to the security of the last 20 years, I would say that it's much improved. Catherine, being there now... 20 years after the initial invasion. When you look at sort of the impact it's had, just give us a sense of how much it's affected the country and how the future looks for Iraq now. It's seismic, obviously. Nothing that has happened over the last 20 years, you can't look at any of it without looking at the invasion. It changed everything. It saddled Iraq with this institutionalized sectarian system of governance, which the youth who, who don't remember what came before are, are fighting against. I think it's probably the first time I've been in, in Iraq since 2003 that I've really seen strong wellspring of support for a non-sectarian future for Iraq, which I think is very promising. Would that finally be the democracy that 
the West was supposed to have delivered. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking last night to this historian, Saad Eskander, who came back to Iraq in 2003. And he came back really because he wanted to help build a democracy. He came back with a group of exiles who were writers, people involved in culture, artists, pro-democracy activists, and he was the only one who stayed. The rest all left as the violence surged. And he talks really about not enough effort being put into developing a mature democracy. America, the Americans were naive, and the leader, traditional leaders, it was a good opportunity to consolidate their power because there are... What had come beforehand, firstly, the monarchy in Iraq and then Saddam Hussein afterwards, that none of these things had prepared Iraq for a democracy and that it was so naive to assume that it could could simply come about. And he essentially feels the only hope for Iraq is this younger generation that have shown the willingness to move beyond this sectarian divisions in Iraq and look for a new future. We are making progress. It's changing slowly, steadily. It's good. People always look to the future as a black, not bright. Yeah. The future. Now they say no. They are optimistic about the future. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Catherine Philp, the diplomatic correspondent at The Times. You can find all of Catherine's work and all of The Times' coverage of the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War at thetimes.co.uk. The producers today were Olivia Case and Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.